Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. It's Tuesday, December 5th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, Donald Trump, president of the United States, endorsed serial child molester Roy Moore for Senate, Alabama. A couple of extenuating circumstances. One, Moore denies it. He totally denies it. Also bolstering this claim was the follow-up argument offered by the president. So, you know. He said 40 years ago this did not happen. So, you know. The So You Know hung out there. Presidential scholars studied it. Legal scholars parsed it. White House lawyer John Dowd claimed authorship, then denied it. What did it mean? Well, yesterday, Roy Moore told us what it meant. It meant, so you know, I'm endorsing you. Here was a tweet. Go get him, Roy. Quote, just got off the phone with President Trump, who offered his full support and said he needs a fighter to help him in the U.S. Senate. And today, Trump added this. We don't want to have a liberal Democrat in Alabama, believe me. We want strong borders. We want uh, stopping crime. We want to have the things that uh, we represent. We want to have the things we represent. The RNC is now back to officially backing Roy Moore, and so are the voters of Alabama. Roy Moore is leading in the most recent polls after trailing in the immediate wake of the scandal. And check the betting markets. So soon after the allegations hit, Roy Moore dipped to a 37% chance to win the election. Now he's at 78, and I think he will win. And I do that based mostly on the partisanship of Alabama and the polling, but also a little bit on this analysis. I didn't think Donald Trump would win the election, but he did. So what you do is you take however crazy, unqualified, dangerous, and odious Donald Trump is, now compare it to Roy Moore. Is Roy Moore so much worse, a little worse, not even as bad? And anyway, I'd say that's all pretty much in the ballpark. Maybe you, you could say that Roy Moore is worse. Let's just say he's a little bit worse, okay? But Donald Trump won the election in the United States of America. So compare how angry, ignorant, and backwards the United States of America is as a whole to the specific state of Alabama. Now, Trump didn't win everywhere in America, but let's just take Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Those are two normal states that Trump won. You know, Wisconsin's 11th in attaining high school diplomas. Pennsylvania, still an above average 24th. Alabama is 44th. Poverty? Wisconsin and Pennsylvania are 18th and 12th, Alabama 48th. Alabama is third to last in chlamydia and second to last in dentists. It is just a hurting, unhealthy, uninformed backwater state compared to the fairly normal average type states, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And Donald Trump still won Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. How can Roy Moore not win Alabama? So yeah, Alabama is fertile soil for a weed aided all the more by the fertilizer about to be poured on by the president himself. And let me say this to my Alabama listeners. If you prove me wrong, I will have so much respect for you. I don't want to say an eat my hat sort of thing, but if there is an Alabama delicacy that's actually disgusting, you know, like Rocky Mountain oysters, let me know. I'll eat that. Anyway, on the show today, an indictment of horribly harassing men who covered the election 
and in the estimation of a New York Times writer, threw the election to Donald Trump. But first, you know what? Let us not dwell on all of our terrible leaders and non-heroes. During the American Revolution, so many people made their mark. Not all of them were famous, though some were. A new book tells the story of the revolution through a couple of familiar characters, but ones I guarantee you you've never heard of until now. There were six of them. Four were white. One was black. One was white father, Iroquois mother. Five were men. One was a woman. There were laborers among them. There was a gadabout. There was a couple of generals, one American and one English. One of them you know, General George Washington. The others, five characters, will they make up the cast of Revolution Song? A Story of American Freedom. It's written by Russell Shorto. He takes six people, I'm going to say five of whom you'd never thought of before, and interweaves them and tries to use them to tell the story, if not of the American Revolution, then the time of the American Revolution. Russell Shorto joins me. Hello. How are you? Hey, Mike. Happy to be with you. So... At least a couple of the characters, I'm going to say your uh, slave or former enslaved person, Venture Smith, and Margaret Moncrief uh, Coglin, would you say? Yeah. They were affected by the revolution. They were born during those times. But I don't know that their story tells the story of the revolution or vice versa. But of course, it's more about, you know, the zeitgeist affected them as it did anyone else. That's right. Uh, my training, my expertise, if I have expertise in anything, it's really in the world of the 17th century, so the century before this, which is really the century in which these notions of like this focus on the individual and individual rights and individual freedoms develop. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that broader wave, what the revolutionary leaders did was package that force and they focused it in this political stream. As you say, people like Venture Smith and Margaret Moncrief Coughlin were not actively a part of the revolution, but they were very much a part of what was in the air. So as you point out through example and through the story of Margaret Coughlin, the phrase second-class citizens is elevating their status in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's too, at this era, it would be anachronistic to talk about a women's movement. Right, right. But as I say, it had been something had been building for some time and everybody was aware of it, not just in this larger political sense. And in the case of women, the cutting edge at that moment was the idea of forced marriage, of, you know, being uh, forced to marry against your will. And people were writing plays about it, newspaper articles about it. And she happens to have come of age. She was a teenager during the war. And in the middle of New York, when New York was being contested, her father forces her to marry a British officer. And her father was a British officer. And she, taking this wider spirit uh, to heart, says, no, I don't want to do it. And she's not, she's not a 19-year-old. She was 14. 14. She was 14, which even then I think was a little unusual. Yeah. And so when she takes this bold step of abandoning or running off from her husband, she has very few options, and yet she's still determined to find a life of independence. And she had basically two models, actresses and mistresses. Right. Uh, And she tries both, but basically she becomes kind of a serial mistress 
to powerful men in London and for a time in Paris. We had her death date wrong, and you figured out when she really died. Did she fake her own death by your estimation? Yeah, that's right. Uh, The few people who've written about her in the past assumed that she died in 1787 because there were obituaries for her in London newspapers. I started with the supposition that she couldn't have because her memoir comes out in 1794 and it goes right up to 1794. And she's talking about interactions with people who were alive and it just didn't make sense that someone would have faked these interactions with living people. So I had to find proof and then I found several letters that she had written after that fact. And then I determined that she faked her death in order to avoid creditors because she built up these mountains of debt. She had to maintain a lifestyle, much as in a very different context, George Washington, when he was trying to Mm -hmm. make it as a Virginia tobacco planter and was failing, had to keep up the lifestyle. And so he bought all of these opulent things and went into debt for it. In her case, though, she was facing debtor's prison and, and skipped over to Paris to avoid it. Did the revolution work out for her? Uh, I guess you would say for a time it worked out for her in the sense that she was part of the, she was riding the waves for a while, these wa- waves of freedom and independence, but ultimately she was engulfed by them. Venture Smith was, uh, we meet him, that's not his name, he's uh, brought to America in slavery, buys his freedom, sets up in Connecticut, becomes a really important person and a very influential person. And you even met his descendants, from what I understand. Yeah, he's an unusual figure of the time. As you say, he he was a slave in New England for many years and slowly worked to buy himself and his family out of slavery. And while he's doing that, you have uh, the Stamp Act, you have the Coercive Acts, you have all of these steps in which the white Americans are starting to fulminate about freedom. He's basically ignoring that because he's pretty much convinced he's got to take care of himself and his family. And that's what he does. So did you get a sense of what he thought was remarkable from what he saw in his life? Well, at the end of his life, he said that at the end of his life, he was very bitter on many fronts uh, at members of his family, at being abused and mistreated. But he thought that his freedom was a treasure beyond measure. And uh, he's meticulously saving to buy himself and his family out of slavery. And even the way he goes about it, he buys himself out, then he buys his two sons out first before his wife and daughter. Why? Because they can earn money faster and get the daughter and and wife out. So he's always kind of, you know, working those angles. Uh, What did he think of George Washington? He met George Washington. He did not meet him. Uh, Well, at least we don't know that he met him. They almost literally crossed paths. What I came across, you know, when I was... Putting this together, there were a lot of places where these different figures ran into each other or crossed paths, but there were also things that came up where there were parallels that I only saw once I was knee-deep in the stories. And one was George Washington, the son of a Virginia planter, and Brotier Furrow, who becomes Venture Smith, the son of an African prince, a minor prince, grow up with similar honor cultures. You know, the honor in the 18th century was a thing that spanned the globe. Mm-hmm. And for Venture Smith, they had slavery where he was from. He understood the concept. And as a slave, he seemed to take on the notion that if you're unfortunate enough to now be in this position, there's an honorable way to do it. You work as well as you can, as hard as you can, but you expect that this owner of yours is going to be honorable as well. And this is one of the things that he became disgruntled about, that he had owners who were not honorable. I think honor plays a role in all of them. Even, I mean, we talked about Margaret Coughlin, the idea that she couldn't live with honor. I mean, as, as honor was defined by the time, that she ha- she could, the only life she could carve out 
uh, for herself that was independent was uh, apart from honor, as the society defined it. But my God, George Germain, I mean, he was called, uh, what, the coward of... What the coward was, of Minden, yes. The coward of Minden, this great battle where... The English won the war, and he was on the winning side, but he did not allow a fellow general to lead a charge at the end. Something like that. Yeah. He uh, he had built this career in politics and in the military. He was this rising star. People were talking about him as a future prime minister. And then at this vast, you know, classic European battle in uh, what's now Germany, he is the second in command, and he's given the order to charge, and he fails to. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why he fails to. Eventually, he did, but too late in the estimation of the leader of the battle. And had he charged in time, the French would have been routed. It would have, they think, ended the Seven Years' War. He became the most hated man in England for this. He was court-martialed. He was almost— Well, he demanded the court-martial. He demanded because the court- of his sense of honor. And he exactly, said, I, exactly. I demand a full trial and a full accounting, and they give it to him, and they slam him worse than he could have ever thought. And friends were saying, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. And uh, so he was completely dishonored. Yeah. And this uh, is 20 years before the American the Revolution. This is in the 1750s, yeah. and so he spends the next 15 years— patiently, methodically rebuilding his reputation, mm-hmm. clawing his way back into power. Making political alliances. And then yeah. in 1772, this man who has this huge burden in his past is given the job of undersecretary of state for the American colonies, right when the American colonies are suddenly going to matter. So he then gets the job of running the war. And his enemies and, for that matter, his friends in England pointed to the way he was doing it as kind of a way to exercise these demons. And and as you say, his enemies, the Whigs in Parliament, who hated him, called him the coward of Minden when they wanted to get under his skin. Let's talk about Corn Planter. So here was a guy who didn't want to go to war, didn't not, but he it wasn't his preference to fight the Americans. Um, Corn Planter appealed to me, he struck me because, you know, you have this kind of stereotypical image of the uh, noble warrior, which he was. But he was many other things, too. He was very complex. He was kind of philosophical. I think it partly stems from the fact that his mother was what's called a lineage matron. She was a, a prominent figure in the tribe. Right. His father was a Dutch— An Iroquois matrilineal society, so the, exactly. the mother's very important. Exactly. Yeah. His father was a Dutch-American trader, Indian trader, kind of a ne'er-do-well who was never around. And he then spends his whole life really missing this presence, and twice at least— travels hundreds of miles to track this guy down to talk with him and say, you're my father. What, what, yeah. what, what's the deal here? So you get this sense of, you know, Indians were people like just like the British were, just like the, uh, the Americans were. And George Germain, as he was trying to exercise the demons of Minden, decides finally to try to bring the Iroquois in on the side of the British. So they gather. Corn Planter argues against it. He says, this is a family quarrel. We don't have any business here. He's overruled. He understands majority rule. He understands how it works. He then becomes a leader attacking American villages and forts viciously. Then the British lose and therefore the Iroquois lose. And the Iroquois appoint him the one to negotiate with the Americans. So he didn't want this to begin with, but now he has to go to them and say, look, what can we get out of the deal? And ultimately he meets twice with Washington when Washington's president. And the Americans basically say, look, you picked the wrong side, and uh, and you don't have any leg to stand on. So he's really – he understands this. Like any negotiator, he gets what he thinks is the best deal. Then he goes back to his people, and they are so disgruntled with him 
that he appeals to the Americans and says, can I have a bodyguard because I have death threats from my own people about this. So he's really, you, you feel this person who's truly caught in the, in the middle of all this. Did Washington personally, in dealing with the Iroquois or with Corn Planter, did he deal with him with his version, that century's version of honor? Um, good question. I think Washington was probably typical of the uh, Americans of his time in that they had a hard time seeing the Indians as fully sort of on the same field of honor, so to speak. There's a very poignant uh, scene late in Washington's life at the very end of his presidency when Corn Planter comes to him a second time and says, okay, we're now being sort of forced to sell lands. If we do, he's trying to, you know, make the best out of this. He says, if we do sell these lands, what I don't want to happen is we take this money and we turn it into whiskey and our young men get drunk and then where are we? What can I do? I've heard of places called banks. Yeah. Can you help me understand this concept? It's very poignant because you see him just going to the president of the United States saying, help me here. I got to get something out of this. Uh, other than George Washington, Abraham Yates is the, the common man who you chronicle. You, you zin, you heard zin uh, <laughs> right. him, his story. Yes. Abraham Yates I picked because, as you say, he's a street level. He was uh, the ninth child of a blacksmith and... He was trained as a shoemaker, and he was always distrustful of elites. And that's what sets him apart from the Hamiltons and the Jeffersons. He's on their side. He's one of the earliest to call for uh, a revolution. Uh, he's a prolific writer, writing essays under the pen name Rough Hewer. He's very proud of his background. But, you know, as soon as the war is over, he basically turns on these people he'd been working alongside and says, you are now becoming a homegrown elite, replacing the foreign elite. Right. And it's just as much, I mean, the, the common man is just as much in danger from you as, as we were from them. Well, did he have politicians he liked? Did he then cast his lot with uh, Adams or uh, the, de the Democrat-Republicans? I exactly. know political yeah. parties were. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He, uh, he was one of the early anti-federalists. And, and the anti-federalists were, by and large, people, far farmers, uh, tradesmen. They were people of his class who distrusted elites, distrusted the idea of a federal government. When state governments were putting together their constitutions, they were the ones who clamored for a Bill of Rights. You know, again, going back to what I was talking about coming out was, of New York. He was right, from Albany. Right. And New York, right in 1776, as they're declaring in independence and as they're dealing with the British troops, he and John Jay together are trying to cobble together a constitution for the state of New York. So he's, while he's requisitioning cannons and soldiers and dealing with loyalists. He's trying to figure out these kind of intellectual concepts, like how do we put together a proper state government? How do we, how do we guarantee individual rights? What do we owe him? I think, you know, history, maybe it doesn't repeat, but it echoes. And he echoes very much in our day. Uh, that fear of elites, you could say, is very much a part of the fear of the power of the federal government. At the same time, he was afraid. He didn't like the idea that the Constitution gave the president so much power that, as he said, all a president had to do is win the Senate over to his side. Then he could get in Supreme Court justices as he wanted, and he could become yeah. a tyrant. And you're seeing a lot of people these days talk about those same things. Well, back then, of course, the only model for leadership they had was 
a king. So you would understand why the checks and balances may have seemed inadequate. In fact, I would think that political science would say the excessive or the number, the tonnage of checks and balances, if anything, have hamstrung the government over the years. Well, that's the other side of the argument. And you're right that people like Hamilton pushed Washington to become a monarch because that's the only, they thought the only viable form of government. And that outraged someone like Yates, to his credit. He was a vehement opponent of the Constitution right to the end. Russell Shorto is the author. Revolution Song is the book, a story of American freedom. I, th- I think we talked about five-sixths of the main characters <laughs> and just touched on Washington, but other stuff was written about him. Russell, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. New York Times, op-ed, Jill Filipovich writer, headline, The Men Who Cost Clinton the Election. Ooh, would this be a story about Comey? Maybe Weider and Comey. Uh, Maybe every unemployed white guy in Sawyer, Forest, or Adams County, Wisconsin. No, indeed, it was not about them. They didn't cost Hillary the election. You know who cost Hillary the election? Mark Halperin, Matt Lauer, Glenn Thrush, and Charlie Rose. Jill Filipovich didn't write the headline, but she made the argument, and it didn't make sense. It was infuriating, in fact. Halperin, Rose, and Lauer all deserve to lose their jobs and their reputations. We'll see what happens to Glenn Thrush. And a couple weeks ago, Rebecca Traister, my favorite on the feminism politics beat, wrote for New York Magazine, our national narratives are still being shaped by lecherous, powerful men. Great article, as most of hers are. It was better argued. It included Halperin, but also O'Reilly and cultural figures like Harvey Weinstein. Filipovich, on the other hand, conveniently ignored Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., two very, very prominent and vocal Hillary Clinton supporters who are also horrible, lecherous men. What she did is she cited four journalists. Now, I think in order to prove her point, what she'd have to do is cite specific examples of the journalism that they offered and prove that it was bad, that it was misreported, that it was unfair, that it was over the top. And it would be even better if she contrasted that with journalism that these men offered about male candidates that weren't any of those things. And she does not do this. Now, Matt Lauer, among all the cited examples, he probably did the worst things and also had the worst interviews. He interviewed on the deck of the uh, USS Intrepid, both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and his Clinton interview did not go well, coming back time and time again to the issue of emails on the server. Pakistan, some of the emails you sent and received happened while you were overseas. And Director Comey also said that while they have no proof, we assess that it is possible that hostile actors gained access to Secretary Clinton's personal email accounts. Was that sexism? Maybe. It might have been. It was overkill when compared to the interview he did with Trump, where he pressed the Republican candidate but didn't really bear down on him. It didn't seem equal. Of course, coming out of that whole ordeal, I formed the impression that Hillary Clinton was giving the best answers she could. Matt Lauer just didn't accept them. Donald Trump was giving no answers at all. And Matt Lauer said, okay, and moved on. I don't think a reasonable voter would have watched those interviews and concluded that Trump did better. However, as we learned during the election, not all voters are reasonable. As far as Mark Halperin, to me, is an example of a moral journalist. 
He enjoys the horse race. He has a lot of access. He trades a lot of access. His books with co-author John Heilman were authoritative documents of the 2008 and 2012 elections, but he's chronically even-handed. So if you know that, you know how to process the guy. Filipovich doesn't give one tangible example of what he says, and it's true that Halpern would sometimes opine that Clinton's answers on the email server were hurting her and that they were inadequate. But really, what else was she supposed to say? In his formulation, what she was supposed to say is go back in time and not have done it, and then she would have been able to say something better. But Halperin was a pretty vocal critic on those charges. He was also a critic of her opponents, though, and not just Donald Trump. Here he is on Morning Joe talking about a double standard as pertained to Bernie Sanders. He's not as deep. For a guy who's been in public life for so long, he talks about the same things over and over, and the Clinton Pope's folks are emailing that around, and justifiably so. It is a giant double standard. If she gave answers like that, yeah. she'd be creamed. Here are the highlights. So there, Halperin saying Hillary is detailed and policy-oriented. Hillary was vague. Halperin called him out for it and said if Hillary Clinton had given those answers, she would have been criticized more than Sanders. Halperin's sexism and harassment do lend themselves to obvious questions about his covering a female candidate, but I don't think Filipovich answers those questions. Was he harsher on Hillary than he was on others? I just think Halperin's the type who doesn't dismiss scandals. Like I said, he's mostly amoral. If the public considers it a scandal, then it's a scandal, and he's going to cover it and treat it as such. Now, Charlie Rose, the third person she cites, a horrible, horrible lech, was pretty much an exemplary journalist as regards Hillary Clinton. Filipovich's only specific against Rose is this. Mr. Rose, after the election, took a tone similar to Mr. Lowers with Mrs. Clinton, talking down to her, interrupting her, portraying her as untrustworthy. She's talking about an interview, an hour-long interview that Rose did with Clinton about Clinton's book, and there was some interrupting. There was some harsh questioning about the emails. It's called journalism. But here's how this confrontational and talking down interview started. First of all, it's a bestseller, runaway bestseller. I think the fastest rising nonfiction book in five years. Mm. Um, this is what one reviewer said. What happens is not one book, but many. It is a candid and blackly funny account of her mood in the direct aftermath of losing to Donald Trump. It is a postmortem in which she is both coroner and corpse. It is a <laughs> feminist manifesto. It is a score-settling jubilee. It is a rant against James Comey, Bernie Sanders, the media, James B. Comey, Vladimir Putin, and James B. Comey. <laughs> <laughs> and let's just point out, the headline and thesis of the piece is These Men Cost Clinton the Election. This interview was about her book written reflecting on the election. It happened after the election. On to Glenn Thrush. Glenn Thrush is as good a journalist as there is, was as good as they come, I think. He also had this MO of getting drunk and making unwanted advances on younger female colleagues. Does this mean his work deserves to be discredited? If it does, Donald Trump will be giving someone a high five. I'm going to guess like uh, Stephen Miller or one of his sons. Definitely not Melania. Anyway... Because the point is that Thrush and his New York Times colleague Maggie Haberman are a couple of the best reporters on the Trump beat, really holding him to account. I guess that doesn't mean he's not sexist. But let's let's look at this. Thrush worked for Politico, not the New York Times, during the campaign, and he co-reported with Annie Carney. Again, they were a great reporting duo. I read Thrush all the time. He's not sentimental, but he's not a cheerleader, but he's a really fair reporter. He also did a podcast that I listened to. Hillary Clinton was on it during during the campaign. They laughed a lot. He talked about this moment in her Senate race 
where Rick Lazio, her opponent, walked over to her and invaded her space and tried to shake her with a pledge. What was going through your mind when he crossed? Because it's because it's, it's, look, it's an interesting kind of dynamic in terms of gender. You're clearly a strong person who can defend herself in almost any environment. I think even your detractors would agree to that. And yet here he is doing something which is... Right. So in terms of like the feminism of that moment, it was right. an interesting moment, right? In terms of the dynamic. What was, was, what was going through your head? Like, get the hell over on your side of the stage? Or like, what are you doing over here? No, I, I, I was watching him do it. And I did have the feeling that it had been rehearsed, that it right. was something that was supposed to be the big moment. That exchange, resting as it does on a discussion of sexism and feminism, doesn't prove definitively anything about Thrush, but neither does Jill Filipovich. I just don't think that she in any way backs up her claim that Glenn Thrush, along with the others, quote, hold deep biases against women who seek power instead of sticking to acquiescent sex object status. Later, Filipovich writes about that for men who use women as sex objects, the women they don't find sexy are discarded, quote, ones who refuse to be disposed of, who continue to insist on being seen and heard, are inconvenient and pitiable at best, deceitful shrews and crazy harpies at worst. That's exactly how Mr. Lauer, Mr. Halperin, Mr. Rose, and Mr. Thrush often treated Mrs. Clinton. Maybe some of them did some of the time, but not all of them most of the time, and not a couple of them any of the time. Their deeds were bad, But that doesn't mean their work was lacking. Apparently, it's not just me who thinks this. The New York Times, in later editions, changed that sentence I just read. So it originally said that's how Mr. Lauer, Mr. Halpern, Mr. Rose, and Mr. Thrush often treated Mrs. Clinton. Now it reads, that's exactly how some commentary and news coverage treated Mrs. Clinton. Huh. Well, some commentary and news coverage certainly did. And some commentary offers overly broad claims to explain a multifaceted political outcome with a rousing but ultimately untrue explanation. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who ranks 27th in Spit and Polish which is a 25th in spit and 29th in polish. Just was also produced by Mary Wilson. She's ranked third in overall lip sync. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He ranks last, tied for last, in Iron Poor Blood. The Gist, we rank 49th out of a possible 50 in pronouncing particularly, particularly. Oomperu de Peru du Peru. Thank you for listening. <laughs>